Good morning, everybody. Let's go ahead and pray as we get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us. Lord, we thank you that you call us your children. Lord, we thank you that when we open ourselves to you and put our faith in you and trust in you and turn to you, Lord, that you come into our lives as a father. Lord, thank you that you are the truest father. Lord, you are the father that our hearts truly need, the father that our hearts truly long for. And Lord, thank you that you love us so much that you raise us up as your kids. And Lord, we ask that this morning you would continue that work of building us up in our most holy faith. Lord, that you would build us up this morning in our relationship with you. And Lord, that as we look at your word, Lord, that you would breathe life into it. Lord, that it, it would that it would be anointed for us this morning that we could receive that message from your heart directly to us, Lord. And we pray that through your word this morning, we would begin to see our lives the way that you want us to see them. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see our circumstances the way that you intend for them to be seen in reality. So Lord, this morning we ask that you would do work in our hearts through your word, and we, we just open ourselves to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. You know, I really love going up in the mountains. For me, that's kind of, uh, kind of my happy place where I like to be, you know. I like the cold air. Uh, I like the wind. I actually love that feeling when, you know, there's just like snow blowing in your face and it hurts. I, I, there's something I like about that, you know. And, uh, and one of the things that I, I love about being back in Colorado is that I'm close to the mountains again. You know, I spent 10 years in Hungary. Some of you know that, some of you might not. And uh, Hungary is pretty much like the Kansas of Europe. So no offense to you, those of you guys from Kansas, but it doesn't do a whole lot for me. So I used to have to drive to Slovakia, which is like two and a half hours away to get some mountains, but, uh, but I did it pretty often. And so it's really nice for me to be back in Colorado where, where I'm close to the mountains. You know, and one of the things that I... I, I I love so many things about the mountains, but one of the things I find very interesting is that you'll go up in the mountains here in Colorado and, uh, and you'll see these gigantic rocks, right? The Rocky Mountains, you see these immovable, just uh, boulders, these massive, impenetrable rocks, right? And sometimes what's, what's amazing is that as you look at them, you'll see that there's these giant boulders, right? Bigger than your house, but sometimes they'll be like cracked right in half. Now, how does that happen? How do you take something that big and that impenetrable and crack it in half? If you would climb up on top of it and take a hammer or, or whatever you got and just pound away on it, you're not going to do anything. You're not going to accomplish anything. You're just going to tire yourself out, right? But you know what happens is that up in the mountains, in nature, there are these two simple forces that are always at work, and they're able to change the shape of solid rock. They're able to penetrate even the most impenetrable surfaces. And you know what those forces are? The sun and the frost. That's it. The sun and the frost. And as they alternate, right, it freezes. Then the sun comes and warms it up. And it's able to change the shape of solid rock. That otherwise, you wouldn't be able to change, no matter how hard you tried. And this morning what I'd like to talk about is how the work of God in our lives is a lot like that. It's like this alternating process of these two forces, the sun and the frost, 
alternating. And they're designed for a purpose. And the purpose is to break through even the hardest of hearts. To change even the most impenetrable surfaces so that God can open us up, so that God can work in us and accomplish his purposes in us. If you have your Bible, please open to Genesis chapter 43. We're actually going to be looking over three chapters because, because these, are, these are narrative, right, and what happens. So, you know, for the last several months, we've been studying the, the book of Genesis on Sunday mornings, and we're almost to the end. Do you realize that in two weeks from now, we are going to end our study of Genesis? And, uh, and that's pretty cool. You know, when we took on the study of Genesis, we said, this is biting off a big chunk. It's, we're going to get a lot out of it, but it's also going to be a long study. And, you know, it really has been quite a long study. We were talking the other day with the elders about what our next series is going to be. And we said we need to do something a lot shorter because in this past series we've done, you know, I think about it like babies have been born, like not even just like one, but like we have like a whole new generation in our church you know and like a, a president was elected and you know what I mean like we have a whole new government and all this stuff so uh, we want to do a little bit shorter series this next one but we're in Genesis on Sunday mornings we're almost to the end the last saga that makes up the the book of Genesis is the story of Joseph and in Joseph's life the key thing we see in every chapter is the providence of God that God is providentially working in all of Joseph's circumstances behind the scenes in ways that Joseph can't even see or can't even know, but God's at work. <coughs> you know, Joseph's life started out really good, right? Things started out looking really positive for him. But at one point in his life, things just went downhill very fast. Things just tanked in his life, right? He... he gets betrayed by his brothers. They sell him into slavery. And then as he's a slave, he gets betrayed again and he gets put in prison for years for a crime that he didn't commit. And all in all, he spends 13 years of his life, the prime of his life really, spent in prison and as a slave. 13 years. But they're in prison. By the providence of God, he ends up meeting these people who are part of the court of Pharaoh, right? The king of Egypt. And he is able to interpret the dream of Pharaoh as God gives him this interpretation. And not only did Joseph end up through this getting out of prison, but he's given a job and he ends up becoming one of the most powerful people, not only in the land of Egypt, but also in the entire world because a famine is coming upon the land. And God warned them that this famine's coming and he told them what to do. Store up food in the years of plenty so that you will have food in the years of famine. So Joseph gets put in charge of the food for Egypt. And because there's this famine, people from all the countries of the world are coming to Egypt to buy food. So Joseph, through this series of events, becomes one of the most influential people in the entire world. People are traveling to him to, to buy food. He's the guy who's in charge of distributing the food. So one day, <coughs> guess who shows up on his doorstep, right? It's his brothers. Remember those brothers? The brothers who stabbed him in the back a few years ago? Like, I believe this knife is yours, right? You know, they stabbed him in the back all those years ago. And now they've shown up on his doorstep and they need him to help them. And here's the thing. Even though Joseph recognizes his brothers, 
They don't recognize him. But here's what's interesting about this story, right? He recognizes his brothers. They don't recognize him. But instead of telling them, hey, guys, it's me, Joseph, remember me? You sold me into slavery. Instead of doing that, he says, he just starts asking them questions. He postpones revealing himself. And he starts kind of playing with them, really. He starts messing with them. He asked them some questions. He said, well, is this everybody in your family? Do you have any other brothers or sisters? Do you have, where, what's up with your dad? And they said, well, we, we have a dad. He's, he's back at home in Canaan. We have a, a younger brother, but our dad didn't let him come with us. Now, you know why the dad didn't let the youngest brother come, right? Because the dad was suspicious all these years that his sons had actually had a part, a part to play in the disappearance, which he believed to be the death of his son Joseph. So he doesn't trust him. You see, family dynamics are still not healthy in this family. There's no trust going on here. So, you know, Joseph starts asking these questions. You know, where's your brother? Why didn't your brother come with you? And then he says, wait a second, how do I know that you guys aren't spies? And he says, actually, you know what? I think you guys are spies. Now, he knows they're not spies, but he's messing with them. So he throws them in jail. After a few days, he lets them out of jail and says, I'll tell you what, here's the deal. I'm going to hold on to one of you. The rest of you return home and bring your brother back with you. And if you return back with your brother, then I'll give you this other brother that I'm holding hostage in prison. So they go home, they take the food that they bought, and when they return home, they open up their bags of food, and what's inside but the money? And they're like, oh no, we're toast. Because if we ever run out of food and need to go back to Egypt, they're going to think that we're thieves. And as soon as we show up, they're going to arrest us. And so they, they also tell their dad the story. They, they bring it and they say, dad, they said we can't go back unless we bring Benjamin. The dad says, I'm never letting you take my son Benjamin. He says, something happened with Joseph many years ago. I don't trust you guys anymore. So that brings us to where we are in chapter 43. Now follow along if you've got your Bible. In the beginning of chapter 43, uh, about a year or so has passed since they've returned from Egypt. They've kind of just left Simeon down there in prison, and they ate all their food. And now they're out of food again, and they're hungry. And the dad says, kids, we're hungry. We need some food. Pack your bags. You need to go back down to Egypt and buy some more food. But, you know, of course, Judah, he, se he steps up and says, Dad, we told you, they won't let us come back unless we take Benjamin with us. They said, they won't let us buy any more food unless we bring Benjamin. We're not even going to get our brother back. We have to take Benjamin. Joseph says, no way. I already lost Joseph. Or Jacob says, I already lost Joseph. I'm not going to risk losing Benjamin too. But then Judah steps up and he says, Dad, I will give you a pledge on my life that he will return safely. He says, Dad, I'm going to personally see to it that Benjamin returns home safely. And when Jacob hears Judah say that, that Judah will take personal responsibility to see to it that Benjamin returns home unharmed, Jacob says, okay, he can go. Now, let me take a break here. One of the most amazing things parts of these three chapters that we're looking at today is this transformation that we begin to see in the life of this man Judah right because we talked about Judah a few weeks ago in one of the 
craziest chapters of the Bible, chapter 38 of Genesis, right? We saw that Judah's life was a mess. That was the point of the chapter. Judah's life was a mess. He was a failure as a father, as a husband, as a believer. He was just this godless meathead guy going around partying and cheating on his wife. But by the end of that chapter, by the end of chapter 38, something really significant happened in Judah's life. He got caught in a sin. You realize that that was, that was the best thing that ever happened to Judah. It was the thing that he feared most, but it was actually the best thing for him. He got caught in the sin that he was committing. He thought he had gotten away with it, scot-free, but it came out publicly, and he was humiliated. He was busted. You know, the Bible says this, that, that if you're walking in sin, eventually your sin will find you out. You think that you're getting away with it, but sooner or later, it is going to come out. And, and it's going to find you out. It's going to come out somehow. That's what happened to Judah. But here's the thing that we see. For Judah, this was the best thing that could have possibly happened to him. Because when his sin was revealed, he repented of it. It was brought to the surface. It was brought to light. And he could repent of it. And we see that then a change began to take place in his life. Because what we see here and, and what we see after this in the, in the next chapter is that Judah is no longer acting like a boy. He's acting like a man. He's taking initiative. He's stepping up. He's leading. He's taking responsibility. He's stepping up and saying, Dad, you can count on me. I'm going to see this through. <clears throat> you know, a question that uh, all men and boys have to deal with at some point in their life, a question that all that goes through the mind of every guy is, at what point do you go from being a boy to being a man? You know, is it a certain age? Is it a certain part of life? Is it when you accomplish something? What takes you from being a boy to being a man? How do you make that transition? And in our society, I think that line is, is even more blurred between boys and men. Because uh, we, we've come up with this term adolescence, right? And adolescence is kind of like an in-between stage where, where you can cover anybody from like age 13 to like age 38 or whenever you end up moving out of your mom's basement and stop playing video games for eight hours a day. You know what I mean? Uh, adolescence is, is really when you're physically mature, but you still behave like a child, right? Uh, it's, it's when you can grow a beard but you're not acting like a man, right? That's adolescence. And that's why adolescence in our society just stretches on indefinitely, you know, from age 13 until whenever men grow, or whenever boys grow up. Because shaving doesn't make you a man, right? There are a lot of boys who can shave. Drinking beer doesn't make you a man, right? Lots of boys drink beer. There are plenty of things that boys can do, but here's what men do. Men bear burdens. Men commit to things. Men see things through. And all you guys in here, I want you to take a look at Judah in these chapters. Look what he's doing. He's acting like a man. He's taking a stand. He's taking initiative. He's leading. He's taking responsibility. He's bearing a burden. And he, he, doesn't, he didn't do these things before. Back in, in chapter 37, right? I guess it was 37. Judah, he was a boy who could shave. That's what he was. Sure, he had a wife and he had some kids, but he wasn't acting like a man. 
He wasn't stepping up. He wasn't leading his family in the ways of the Lord. He was acting like a boy. He was going around and, and messing around with women who weren't his wife. He was not raising his boys. But guys, God's desire for you is that you would be valiant, that you would be courageous, and that you would lead. Lead your families. Don't shirk from responsibility. You need to embrace responsibility. You know, you really, this is true about life for men, is that you really get out of it what you put in. If you always avoid responsibility, you're not going to get a lot out of it. And neither will your family. Step up. You take on ministry, men. That's what you do. You follow Jesus. You love Jesus. You bring your family with you. You step into ministry. You commit yourself to things. You, you say, wife, kids, this is our faith. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to live it out. We're going to follow Jesus. We're going to pray. We're going to read the Bible. We're going to go to church. This is what we're going to do family. We're going to be involved in ministry. We're not going to float around and be non-committal. This is what God's calling us to do, and we're going to do it. And you know what? I really do see that in our church, and I want you to know that. I think that this is one of the greatest strengths that our church has, that we have men who lead their families, who follow Jesus, who serve Jesus. You know, statistics show how incredibly invaluable that is to a family. It makes an incredible difference when especially, in particular, dad or the husband steps up and takes initiative and takes responsibility to lead. And that's what we want to encourage men in this church to do. We want to be a church of men who are men, not just boys who can shave. Men who love Jesus, men of honor, men of dignity, men who work hard, men who love their wives, men who raise their kids, you know, men who serve the Lord. <clears throat> That's what Jesus was for us. Do you know that? He was the greatest man who ever lived. He carried, he bore the greatest burden that's ever been born. He saw it through. And we want to be men like that. So back to our story. Judah makes this pledge that he's going to go and he's going to take care of Benjamin. He's going to see to it that Benjamin makes it home safely. So when, when they arrive back in Egypt, um, they're, they're not sure if they're going to be immediately imprisoned because of the money that they think was stolen or what's going to happen. So they arrive in Egypt and here's what happens. Instead of being put in prison, they're brought into the dining room, into David's, or sorry, into Joseph's palace. And they're seated at this table and they're just given the royal treatment. And when Joseph sees Benjamin, it's the first time he's seen him in over 20 years, his little brother, he runs out of the room. He can't control himself, just this uncontrollable emotion. He runs out of the room and he, and he cries. And then it says that he cleans himself up and he walks back in the room and he says to his servants, all right, set the table. That's kind of a dude thing to do, right? You just suck yourself up, all right, set the table, you know, get it, you know. Didn't want him to see him crying. So... Anyway, it says that they give everybody food, but Joseph orders that Benjamin be given five times as much as anybody. Now, that definitely probably stood out, right? Everybody gets a steak. Benjamin gets five steaks, right? Everybody gets one lobster. Benjamin's got a heap of lobsters, right? Everybody gets a banana split. Benjamin's got like five banana splits. Now, what's going on? Joseph is testing his brothers. Do you remember what his brother's problem was before? 
They were envious when they saw that he was receiving preferential treatment. So here goes Joseph, and he says, well, how, do you, how are you guys going to respond when Benjamin gets preferential treatment? So they have dinner, they're having a great time, big party, Simeon's out of jail, finally, and they're all back together, and then they take their food, and Joseph sends them on their way. Have a great trip, say hi to your dad for me, see you guys next time you need some food. Now what is Joseph waiting for? Why has he not yet revealed himself to his brothers? What is, what is it exactly that he's waiting for before he reveals himself? We're going to see. So Joseph sends them on their way, but once they're a few miles down the road, there comes this messenger from Pharaoh's army, right? His police, really. And he stops them in and he says, hey, one of you guys stole the silver chalice, this special cup, the divining cup of Joseph. Now see, what happened is that Joseph planted it in Benjamin's bag to make it look like Benjamin stole it. And then he sent the police after him to get him and arrest him and say, you guys stole this. Now what is he doing? Why is he messing with them? So they bring him back to Joseph. And the brothers are so sure that this glass, this cup, is not in their bags that they say, you know what, if you can find this cup in any of our bags, you can go ahead and kill the guy whose bag you find it in. Now you can see where this is going. They search the bags and guess what? Guess whose bag it's in? Benjamin's. Benjamin has just been sentenced to death. And what do the brothers do? They say, oh no, you know, this is the worst possible thing that could happen. Their father was so desperately worried about Benjamin, something happening to him. And now the worst that they could have possibly expected has come to be. Their hearts sink. It's just their worst nightmare. And so they go and they, they stand before Joseph and they say, take all of us. We'll all be your servants. Just take us, but just let our brother go back to our father. And Joseph says, no, that's all right. I only need him. He's the, he'll do fine, just a little guy. And, uh, and then at that point, here's what happens. Something amazing. Judah does something amazing again. He steps up and he makes an offer. <coughs> he says, Take me instead. Let Benjamin go, but take me instead. He says, I will take his place. I will take his punishment. Even though Judah is completely innocent, he didn't steal anything. Even though he's completely innocent, he says, take me. Let me stand in his place and take his punishment that he might go free. See, Judah is foreshadowing something which will come much later. Judah is going to have a great, 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 great grandson named Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus of Nazareth, one day, he too will substitute himself for others, right? He will bear the punishment that he didn't deserve. He will bear our punishment. He will bear the punishment for our wrongdoings, for our sins. And he will die on a cross. He will bear upon himself the sins of the world, all of them, past, present, and future that we might be set free. Jesus said this, he said, no greater love has any man than this, that he would give his life for his friends. And then he said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And he stood in our place that we might be forgiven, that we might be set free. Judah, he's being a foreshadowing, a picture of Jesus. 
And when Joseph sees this, this act of Judah, this just electrifying act of selflessness that that Judah displays, this display of, of love for his brother where he's even willing to give up his own entire life to save his brother, Joseph is so moved by it that he can't control himself anymore. And he just breaks down. And he sends everybody out of the room except his brothers. And he weeps aloud and he just says, It's me. I'm Joseph. I'm your brother. And his brothers don't know what to do. They're just shocked. They're like, what? How can this be? And Joseph calls them closer. And this is what it says in chapter 45. He says, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. (coughs) And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has has been in this land two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. But God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house, and a ruler over the land of Egypt. Now hurry and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. And then verse 14, it says, He fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck, and he wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. This is really the climax of the whole story. Joseph tells his brothers, he says, it's me. He says, and you know what? I've come to realize something. You guys sold me into slavery. But what I've come to realize is that behind everything that you were doing and behind everything that I was doing and what other people were doing, behind all of it, God was doing something. God was at work the whole time. He had me here for a purpose. He brought me here for a reason. Even though it was hard, God did this. And he essentially says, I forgive you for all that you did to me and I don't hold it against you and I don't want you to feel bad anymore. And he embraces them and kisses them and they sit down and talk like brothers. Isn't that powerful? But the thing I want you to think about here is this. This is the thing that's odd about these three chapters. That's why I want to tell the story together. Think about this. If Joseph had already forgiven his brothers at this point, then why did he put them through the ringer? Why did he make them go through all this stuff before finally revealing himself to them? Why did he mess with them? You know, why, why did he send them all the way back home to get Benjamin and bring them all the way back? Why did he do the whole thing with giving Benjamin this special treatment? Why did he do the whole thing with making it look like Benjamin had stolen the cup and then arresting them? Why go through all of this if he's already forgiven them? You know, why not just tell them, hey guys, it's me, Joseph, and, and I have no hard feelings about the past. Uh, you know, I've forgiven you, and let's just let bygones be bygones, okay? Why not do that? Here's what one Bible commentator has to say. <coughs> At first sight, Joseph's rough handling of his brothers has the look of vengefulness. You know, you look at this and you think, is he trying to get back at them? But nothing could be further from the truth. Behind the harsh pose was deep, almost uncontrollable affection seen in Joseph's continual running out of the room to weep. And after the ordeal is over, there's nothing but overwhelming kindness and openness. 
So here's what's up. Joseph's enigmatic treatment of them was a kinder, more searching test. And just how well judged was his policy can be seen in the growth of new attitudes in the brothers as the alternating sun and frost broke them open to God. That's what we started off talking about, remember? Sun and frost. That's what broke them open to God. That's what changed them. Now here's what Joseph was doing, and this is what what I'm going to focus on for the rest of our time. He was applying the same process in dealing with his brothers that God had used in dealing with him to lovingly care for him and to change him and make him into the man whom he had become. Here's what the Bible says, that if you will open up your heart to God and receive the gospel and put your faith in him and turn to him and enter into a relationship with him, then he will come into your life and he will become to you a father. And here's what a father does. All you guys who are dads, you know this. What we read today in our reading from Hebrews chapter 12 says that if God is a father to you, then what he does is he will lovingly discipline you. Now, for most of us in our culture, that word discipline really turns us off, right? We don't get super, like, stoked about that word. Because the English word discipline, for us, it almost always means punishment. It has the connotation of of punishment in our language. This week, I, I, uh, you know, I'm studying Greek for school, and, uh, and I was studying Greek. So here's a little word study for you. The Greek word here that is... um, is used for discipline, is the word paideia. Now, paideia, that's an interesting word. This is the word from which we get such words in English as pediatrics, right? What the word paideia means is this. It's the oversight of the entire environment of a child so that the child receives everything they need in order to grow strong and mature. So see, paideia, this idea of the discipline of God, is really a loving, nurturing thing. It's the idea that God lovingly nurtures us. He's actively involved in the lives of his kids, teaching us and training us, helping us to grow and mature. But here's the thing. Paideia is this nurture, but it has teeth in it, right? It's nurture with teeth. And any of you who are parents know about this because, because parents know that Nurturing love also needs to have teeth if you want to raise your child up to maturity. Because if you really care for your child, you have to introduce boundaries and you have to introduce consequences. And you have to, and what a consequence is really is that, is that when somebody crosses a boundary, in comes the consequence. And what is the consequence? It is a sharp unpleasantness. It's just enough unpleasantness that you knowingly and purposefully bring into the child's life in order to induce change in them, right? You're bringing in unpleasantness, but not out of spite, not to stick it to them. You're bringing in unpleasantness because there's something that needs to change in them. And that's the point of of the love of God for us. Proverbs 22 verse 15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. So yes, you bring consequences. You bring sharp unpleasantness into your child's life, but just enough and not more, right? And in just the right way to lovingly change them to lovingly mature them, to lovingly grow them into something good, 
That is loving, nurturing discipline. You know, good parenting is really a mixture of nurturing and disciplining, right? And that is the idea of this Greek word, paideia. It's raising up a child through nurturing and discipline. And that's what the Bible says that God does in our lives as our loving Heavenly Father. So when we talk about Joseph and the providence of God, we see that God rules over all the circumstances of our lives. He orchestrates the circumstances of our lives. This is part of it. Part of God's providence in our lives is his loving discipline. He rules over the circumstances of your lives providentially. But that also means that he will sometimes knowingly and, on, and purposefully bring in unpleasantness and uncomfortableness. He'll bring in these difficult situations in your life knowingly because he wants these things to be a catalyst for change in your heart because he wants to make you into something great. God has a dream for you. And in order to do that, he has to work in your heart. You're like that rock up in the mountains and he uses the sun and the frost to change your shape. <coughs> so here's the deal. Because of sin, every person on earth, we live in a broken world. You know that bad things happen to all people. All people will face disappointments and tragedies and troubles. This is the brokenness of the world. At the same time, all of us also deal with inner brokenness, right? There is brokenness in our soul. There are things that are very wrong with me. And there are things that are wrong with you too, right? We have things like foolishness in our hearts and blindness and fear and cowardice and selfishness. But the promise of the gospel is this, that if you turn to God and he becomes your father and you become his child, then his providence will come into your life. And he will providentially orchestrate the circumstances of your life in order to make you into something great. He will, and what that means is that he will even bring the brokenness of the world, the disappointments and tragedies and troubles into your life in just the right way, in just the right measure according to his perfect knowledge that those unpleasant things might be the very means by which he changes you, by which he teaches you and strengthens you and matures you and even heals the brokenness in your heart. That's a heavy thing, right? But think about your circumstances. Think how that applies to you. The whole goal of the whole thing is to make you into that unique person that God designed you to be. To make you into that beautiful, glorious person that God designed you to be. See, that's what happened in Joseph's life. God didn't create those evil things. God didn't make the brothers betray Joseph. He didn't make people lie. God doesn't create those things, but here's what God does. He orchestrated these circumstances, these events together, and he purposefully brought this unpleasantness, this unpleasant situation into Joseph's life for a loving purpose. He used the unpleasant situation to teach Joseph, to grow Joseph, to take him from a point of selfishness to a point of compassion and generosity, to bring him from foolishness into wisdom. That's why James says this. He says, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
and steadfastness will have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's what we're talking about. That's the providence of God. And here's what the providence of God means for you practically in this way. Number one, what feels like weakening is actually strengthening. What feels like weakening is actually strengthening. You know, the last verse of the reading today said this, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. And that word trained there is another Greek word, gymnazo. You know where we get, we get the word gymnasium from the word gymnazo. In other words, that means that you are in God's gymnasium and he's working you out. And you know what? How many of you, if you lift weights as you just do curls, you're feeling my arm is getting stronger by the second. Yeah. With each curl, it gets easier and easier, right? No, not at all. It's just the opposite, right? When you're stretching that muscle, when you're working that muscle, it feels weaker and weaker in every moment. But that's just the thing. When God is training you, what feels like weakening is actually strengthening. If you'll stick it out, if you will be steadfast, you will grow stronger through that thing. And number two, when troubles happen in your life, don't look outside and ask, what is God doing? But look inside first and ask, what is God doing? What is God trying to accomplish? Don't just look outside. What is he trying to work out in my circumstances? But look inside. What is he trying to do in my heart? The story is told of a lumberjack who knew that next week he was going to go down and cut down all these trees in this one part of the forest. So he goes and he, he goes to check out this grove that he's going to cut down next week. And he looks up and, oh no, there's this, this little mother bird and she's building a nest up in that tree. And he's going to come along and cut that tree down next week. And all those little baby birds, those little, you know, hatchlings, they're going to die. They can't fly yet. If she, if she lays her eggs, they're going to die. So what does he do? He takes his axe and he whacks the tree. And the tree starts shaking and the bird's up there getting whiplash and the nest is falling all over the place. And the bird's looking down and say, hey, what's the big idea? What are you doing? Why are you making my life miserable? I'm fine right here. So the bird flutters over to the next tree. And again, starts building its nest. And Lumberjack sees it, so of course he goes over and again, he whacks the tree. And again, the bird's up there getting whiplash again and saying, why are you doing this to me? Just leave me alone. It's so peaceful here in this forest. Lumberjack is just not going to let him do it. So again, to the next tree. And again, just whacks the tree, makes it shake. Shakes the bird out of his nest. He's fallen all over the place. Until finally, that bird flies up to a high rock and plants and starts building his nest or her nest in that high rock. And the mother bird's looking down and wondering, why did that man make my life so miserable? What is wrong with him? Why would he keep following me around and making these terrible things happen to me? But see, just like in that forest, in this life, Every tree is coming down. Do you know that? Every tree is going to come down. And you got to build your nest in the rock. And God loves you so much that he will pursue you. He will keep coming after you. 
He will keep shaking the trees that you try to build your nest in until you finally give up and build your nest on the rock. That's his goal. That's where he wants to take you. Until your life, until your heart is firmly established in him. You know, the God of the Bible, he absolutely loves you. He absolutely accepts you. And if you are in Christ, he absolutely forgives you. And it is because he loves you, it is because he has accepted you, that he will never let you be until you are firmly established in the rock. He has designed you to be something great. He has designed you to bring him glory and partake in his mission. He's designed you to save lives. And he's not going to let you go until you're perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And he will bring in the sun, the joys of life, and the frost, the difficulties of life, in order to change you, in order to change the shape of your heart, in order to break you open to God. By his providence, he brings in both the joys and the brokenness of this world into your life. Not in spite of the fact that he loves you, but precisely because he loves you. And he wants to shape you into a beautiful, unique person that he designed you to be. That dream that he has for you. <coughs> I'll finish with this. The sun and the frost together are able to change the shape of solid rock. The sun and the frost, the nurture and the discipline, the affirmation and the conviction. And that's what God used to change the, the heart of Joseph. Joseph was in prison. That's a lot of frost. But God was with Joseph. That's a lot of sun. Joseph used the same method on his brothers. He brought them into situations that stressed them out. That's a lot of frost. But then he took care of them and he loved them and he blessed them. Remember, he just gave them food. He lavished gifts upon them. That's a lot of sun. And the two of them together brought these brothers to a place where they never would have come otherwise. If he would have just said, guys, don't worry about it. If he would have put them in prison but not done something like this with them, they never would have come to this place of openness to Joseph, of openness to God, of, of not only repentance, but knowing that Joseph, without a doubt, loves them. And God will do the same work in your life, too, by his providence, in order to change you, in order to change the shape of your heart, to heal you from your brokenness, and to form Christ in you, that you might be whole and complete, lacking nothing. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have a dream for us. You have a dream to turn us into those people that you want us to be, those beautiful, unique people. Lord, thank you that you want to use us in your mission. You want to use us to save lives. Lord, thank you that you're not done with us, and thank you that you love us so much that you will never stop pursuing us. If there are any of you here today who would say, I know that God is pursuing me, in my present circumstance, he's using it to pursue me, to take hold of my heart, to do work in my heart. I encourage you to respond to God over the next couple songs. We're going to worship now and we're going to take part in communion, remembering his body broken for us and his blood shed for us. And if there's anyone here today who has not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, 
for your salvation, for the only hope for your redemption, the only hope for you to be washed clean and set free. I encourage you, I, pl I plead to you in the name of Jesus to be saved today, to give your heart, stop resisting and give your heart to Jesus and then partake in communion and then it will have meaning for you. It will not just be a little bread and a cup, but it will be the body of Christ and the blood of Christ shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. So Lord, we pray in this time, Lord, do work in our heart as we commune with you over the next few songs as we sing to you from our hearts as we pray in Jesus' name.